Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Calcutta to Casablanca here on KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara and 93.7 FM in Northern San Diego, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia and Northern Africa or Swana Collective that brings you your weekly half hour of Swana Region Radio. My co-host today is Swana Collective member Hamoud Sali. Welcome to the show today, Hamoud. Welcome. Glad doing it with you, David. This is our first, right? Likewise, it is, I think, yeah. yeah. We'll do it good. Yeah. So um, on this Sunday after the so-called Thanksgiving holiday, which celebrates the 19th century myth of Native American generosity towards the pilgrims settlers in the 17th century, and is immediately followed by an orgy of consumerism on the aptly named Black Friday, we are hosting a conversation about the meaning and political force of the notion of indigeneity in the United States and the Swana region that we regularly cover. The ironies could scarcely be more glaring of celebrating Thanksgiving and of doing so in this National Native American Heritage Month, cynically declared by the outgoing president, even as he filled his administration with predatory agents for resource extraction industries. As his administration rushes to issue permits for more extraction and despoliation of native lands before it hands that task over to Joe Biden, Israel seems to be using Trump's waning days of power to accelerate its ongoing program of dispossession, home demolition, and land grabbing from the Palestinians, a people whose centuries-old presence in Palestine or Canaan makes them, to all intents and purposes, indigenous to the land. Today, we discuss a number of topics, including the relationship between indigenous activism in Palestine and Native America, with our guests, Stephen Salaita, Amra Salomon Johnson and Eman Ganayem. How helpful is the concept of indigeneity to either region, given the complexity of patterns of settlement, dispossession and displacement, and shared experiences of genocide or ethnic cleansing? How do myths of destiny and priority, which is to say justifications for supremacy, seek to indigenize the settler? How does indigenous organizing challenge walls and borders? In doing so, how can we imagine beyond the nation state form? Settler states and corporations have always aimed to appropriate the land and its resources. How is that manifesting in ongoing struggles? How have questions around water extraction and defilement, for example, become central organizing issues for inventive politics in both regions? Stephen Salaita is an independent scholar of indigenous and Arab American studies and author of many books, including The Holy Land in Transit, Colonialism and the Quest for Canaan in 2006, followed uh, 10 years later by Internationalism, Decolonizing Native America and Palestine, 2016, both of which have really been seminal books in setting the terms for thinking of the relations between Palestinian and indigenous struggles against settler colonialism. Those books were joined by Uncivil Rights, Palestine and the Limits of Academic Freedom in 2015. And I understand that Stephen is now working on no less than two novels as we speak. I look forward to those, Stephen. 
Amra Salomon Johnson is a writer, scholar, artist, and activist of Akimel Odam and Tohono Odam descent, and is co-organizer of Res Beats, an indigenous youth project, and is part of the Odam Anti-Border Collective. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Riverside, and her work centers on transnational indigenous studies, indigenous feminism, and memoir. She's currently working on a book on, indig on indigenous feminism, disaster decolonization, and land. She's recently published a field-changing essay, Disaster Decolonization, the Strong-Hearted Work of Regeneration in the journal Political Theology Network Symposium that powerfully weaves together her activist, land-focused, and mothering practices with thinking about the possibilities of life under COVID-19. And Eman Ganayem is the 2020-2021 Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She earned her PhD in English with minor degrees in American Indian Studies and Gender and Women's Studies from, U from UIUC. Her research examines Palestinian and American Indian literature and the larger context of global indigenous and refugee studies through a framework of interconnected settler colonialisms and comparative indigeneities. So let me say welcome to the show, Stephen, Amra, and Eman. It's great to have this collective conversation today. Let me start by asking you all that question. How helpful is the concept of indigeneity to either region, given the complexity of patterns of settlement, dispossession, and displacement? Stephen, let me start with you and open the conversation this way. In, in, inter, in your book, Internationalism, you say that the adoption of such language is a rhetorical act meant to situate Palestinian dispossession in a specific framework of colonial history, meaning specifically settler colonial history. Does that term rhetorical disqualify the term indigenous from serious consideration? Not to put you on the spot, but um, rhetorical can mean that. And is it misleading to speak of Palestinians as indigenous? And would it be better to reserve that term for groups like Native Americans or the tribal peoples of South Asia, for example? So over to you, Stephen. Um, I put you on the spot. Let's see you get out of it. <laughs> Thank you, um, and it's, it, it's an honor to be here with you and, and, and Hamoud. So thank you for having me on. And you have put me on the spot because that's uh, a difficult set of, of questions that, um, you know, that, that I very much hope Amra and Iman can, <laughs> can, can, can help me think through. Um, I, I do think it's important. I, I using rhetoric, I guess, in its, academic sense as a set of discourses, a, a practice of raising narratives and engaging with them as, as uh, audience members, as uh, something that is very much staked into political and economic systems locally and globally. So I, I think of it as uh, rhetorical in a very political sense. And I, I do believe that a term and a concept such as indigenous, capital I indigenous, is is very much useful in understanding the Pal Palestinian struggle, its national liberation struggle. For a lot of people, they they see the, this contest 
between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews over who gets to control a term like indigenous and, and what a term like indigenous means in terms of presenting a narrative or a political rhetoric, if you will, to audiences both in, in West Asia and around the world. But um, I, I think the first thing is, is that we need to complicate what indigenous means in, in relation to the complications of what Palestinian means and that I don't ascribe indigeneity based on the sectarian dimensions of modern Zionism. Right? That uh, I, I don't think that one needs to be Jewish or Christian or Muslim to claim indigeneity. One needs merely or mostly to descend from the population that has been there from millennia. And there's no simple way to work out the religious characteristics of those populations across time. But Palestine or Palestinians absolutely constitute a national community. That's not in dispute, except for anyone you know who, who who's you know attached to the idea of, of Israel inhabiting an empty land. Um, that uh, the the Palestinian national community is indigenous, and its indigenous characteristics aren't sectarian. In other words, they in in encompassed a sort of uh, cultural and historical set of features that supersede the way that settler colonization divided societies up according to sectarian considerations. Um, and, and within those sectarian considerations, you have economic considerations, you have racial considerations, and on and on and on. But um, it's not necessarily as trenchant the indigeneity, the notion as it is in, in North America, primarily because Jewish people or people who identify in some way as Jewish do have a, a historical presence in, in the nation of Palestine. But that historical presence, I would argue, is one that is wrapped up into and accommodated by most notions of Palestinian indigeneity that uh, Modern Zionism has, has Zionism in general, I don't know why I keep saying modern, you know, I guess I am thinking of Zionism as a modern colonial movement, I guess, as, 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 um, as opposed to something that is uh, some kind of ancient, you know, cultural characteristic, as, as a lot of its proponents try to present it as. And so I, I like the, the idea of indigeneity because it, it stakes out a very clear difference, as troublesome as it is, between those who. Can you all hear me? It's telling my internet connection is unstable. Am I am I still there? Okay, sorry. Excuse me. You're it, you're it, still there. It, yes. Yeah. Between those who who can lay claim to that landscape by virtue of their genealogy, by virtue of their culture by virtue of their identity, by virtue of their relations, um, all, all kinds of things, things that are that that are are both palpable and and imagined, you know, as a, a lot of scholars would have it, things that we just feel, in other words, um, a sense of belonging, uh, something that that to some degree is abstract. And I, and the other side of the coin then, of course, are those uh, settlers who who 
in the late 19th century created a, a, a set of mythologies and those set, the, that set of mythologies doesn't necessarily reflect an understanding of what indigeneity is according to how we understand it, um, you know, in the Pacific, in North and South America, and in the others of the world, where, you know, I guess there there are, you know, uh, communities that 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 the most people recognize as as indigenous. But for Palestinians to make a claim as indigenous, we have to understand them first as a national community, and all of the characteristics of a national community are present. And they've always been there, and and those characteristics are, are easy to identify and understand. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I'm. I, that's that raising that whole question of of a national identity and its relationship to indigeneity is is one I hope we can take further. I, I don't know if Amra has any comments about that awkward relationship between the idea of nation and the idea of indigeneity. Well, it, it's it's complicated. Um, I, I I would love for us all to kind of talk about it more. I was just thinking um, while you're talking, Stephen, about how you know my family's from a border region um, where you know Autumn and Mexican and and so Autumn peoples have you know endured Spanish colonialism and U.S. colonialism. So we're kind of in between the two, you know, and literally divided by the border of these two neo-colonial nation states. So I think about like indigeneity often as, you know, on the one hand, there's this legal concept that comes from colonial states um, and, you know, international legal concepts. And in our context, uh, Mexico regulates what it recognizes as indigeneity very differently from the United States. So you have, um, you know, folks who, you know, might be indigenous peoples, but would be recognized by one state and not recognized by the other. Um, you know, and, and then we have our own definitions of it, <laughs> which are very different from these colonially imposed definitions. So the colonially imposed definition um, is a form of containment, right? It's a, it's a logic that's um, created to document and contain and dispossess people. So the metrics of it, are designed to facilitate that, you know, so you see in Mexico that they use language and a concept of like staticness in place, you know, if people are still in their village, they're still speaking their indigenous language, they're still dressed traditionally, this idea of a static culture is how um, indigeneity is recognized and Autumn descendant communities in Mexico are not, have not been considered as Autumn communities, for example, even though other autumn communities will recognize the descendant communities. Um, and there's a movement going on of self-recognition right now where the autumn communities in Mexico have decided to recognize themselves. And they've incorporated their um, you know, mixed race and descendant communities, which is very unheard of in Latin America where this idea of racial purity and language purity is how the state wants to limit who's indigenous and therefore limit who has rights and recognition. Um, and so that's seen as a form of violence to our communities. And so the communities have decided to recognize themselves. Um, now on the US side, it's it's through, you know, paper, you know, not language. So it's it's colonial documentation. You have to be in the colonial archive. A colonizer had to recognize your ancestors and a certain degree of blood quantum of those ancestors in order for you to be uh, included in 
the group of folks that are state recognized. And there's a lot of people who, you know, don't qualify for that. Like the, the community that my family's from was recognized in the early part of the 20th century by the colonial government when they were trying to figure out what to do with us. And then they decided they didn't want to do anything with us because they wanted our land. So then we fell off of the paper rolls, you know, we fell off of the Indian censuses and we're no longer included, even though people continued to be on them. <laughs> so, um, you know, so you have like, you know, and in, in the Southwest and California and, and, you know, along the border, you have all these uh, non-federally recognized communities that, that are not federally recognized because the resources that they sit on are too valuable to the state. The state doesn't want to recognize them because then they would have to right. you know, recognize their rights. Um, and so people have their own concepts of indigeneity, though, um, that's, you know, based on genealogy, based on relationship to community, to culture, to land, to history, um, to experience. And, and I think about you know, the difference between, you know, those, those two formations, you know, the colonial imposed formation, the way that we recognize ourselves and the land recognizes us because it bears the mark of our history. And, and that being a useful bridge to think about our relationships with other colonized peoples. But, but I'm also cautious of the term indigeneity because I think it, it gets conflated with this, um, with romanticized stereotypes that don't uh, match up to the reality on the ground of, of complex cultures and civilizations. So, you know, I think when people think of indigenous, they think of the tribal and all of the stereotypes that the tribal, you know, brings forward, whether that's, um, sorry, my, my son has just entered the picture. So we welcome, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, I think about this in terms of of the Americas, but also like connecting to indi other indigenous peoples in Palestine. If if you limit your definition of indigeneity to ideas of the tribal, does that preclude folks who have monotheistic religions? Does that preclude folks who have complex economies, or social stratification, or histories of you know political formations that could be you know similar to um, wide-ranging trade networks, you know. And so I think that if, you know, not everybody falls into the stereotype of the nomad or the hunter-gatherer. And so if we want, if we think about indigeneity as conflated with, with land-basedness um, through this stereotype of the tribal, then, then we're not recognizing that there are colonized indigenous folks that might have had very different societies. And might well, continues to still have them. So, so I'm I'm cautious about the term. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. also, I mean, to, mm. to throw another question at you. I mean, indigeneity is so often associated with being tied to a very particular piece of land mm -hmm. that it denies the fact of movement and exactly. and the huge sort of my, not migration so much as trade routes, for example, that tied indigenous societies together. Or in the case of Palestine, the fact that Palestine was a kind of hinge between Africa, Asia, and Europe for a very long period of its history, which ironically settler colonialism that's supposed to modernize has actually prevented from happening. So I'm curious, Amal, maybe, I, I don't know if, if these are issues that, that you think about in your work, but this, this question of territoriality and indigeneity um, 
and how it affects both, you know, both Palestinians as indigenous people and, and Native Americans, a term I hesitate to use. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, and, and it's complicated because um, on the one hand, I think like I, th I think of our own context, you know, so I think about like in Arizona, you can still see um, historical sites like Casa Grande, which are, you know, these, you know, multi-story um, buildings that, that our ancestors built that were very reflective of their long-standing relationship with the Mayan empire. Um, and, you know, and we, there's archeological evidence of our trade routes that extends all the way down to Honduras and all the way north up to Canada. And, you know, that's, that's in oral history. That's in, that's in all kinds of uh, different ways that we, we record time and space and relation. Um, but then, I, so I think we always say that, you know, we've had these relationships with other indigenous peoples for a very long time and people, you know, had to move to develop them, right? <laughs> you know, people right. didn't just stay in place, but we, you know, we traded with each other, we traveled, we went on adventures, you know. Um, there was war, there was conflict, there was all kinds of reasons that people were on the move. There was, um, you know, environmental displacement. That's all happened historically before. The, what, what we're seeing now with, you know, migrations of people and movements of people is not new. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about how the state and colonially imposed concepts of indigeneity fix people in place. And, and don't allow us to account for that history and account for like the normalization of human movement. Um, and I think it becomes really difficult when we start thinking then of places as an object of scarcity and an object of possession. So um, I think about, you know, my grandfather's generation and how they were still resentful towards Apache and Navajo people who've been been in the Southwest for hundreds of years, thousands of years. But, you know, for my elders generation as autumn, they're like, they're new. They're not from here. <laughs> they're originally from the North. <laughs> they're not really from here. And they would always kind of invoke that, you know, yeah. and, and that history of, of, of conflict, you know, because these were peoples that all of them were in conflict with um, for several hundred years. And, and so they would see like, you know, they were very, my elders generation were, would question like, why did the Apache get a reservation in Arizona? This is our land, not theirs, <laughs> you know? And they would, they would be thinking about it in terms of scarcity and, and in terms of these old conflicts and not in terms of our shared status as colonized peoples, as indigenous peoples, as people surviving, um, you know, these multiple colonial regimes and, and realizing that the conflict between indigenous peoples had been ex exacerbated by that. So a lot of the heightened sense of, um, you know, the heightened history of intense conflict between our peoples happened in the 1800s mm. when, you know, the US was invading. And, and so to think about that, you know, as, as the historical context for these old um, animosities and, you know, something that I think my generation is still dealing with, you know, where we're like, you know, I would talk to some of my friends and, and we laugh about how if our grandparents could see us that, you know, we're friends, <laughs> 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 they wouldn't be amazed, you know, right. um, 
Emma, it, let me, it's let me that that's that's one of the effects, unfortunately. Yeah, is that right. it, the, the colonization divides us and continues to divide us? Well, actually, I'd let, let me um, throw that issue out to Iman, since, um, as as Stephen mentioned, there was, in fact, a society in historic Palestine where all kinds of different groups uh, intermingled. Is this question of settler colonialism producing conflicts uh, and dividing people something that, that you think about in your work? In, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in, um, to respond in a way that um, kind of incorporates what both Stephen and Amra had said, um, indigeneity, and, I'm, and I see that these two threads obvious in our responses, indigeneity has been used as a way to counter settler colonial violence. So there's that political rhetorical discourse. And then on the other side, for us who have a relationship to land in that kind of settler colonial context and prior to it to negotiate for ourselves what indigeneity means for us. And that process is does not have to do much with how settler colonialism defines us as much as us kind of historicizing what that means, particularly to us. And um, in the past year I had uh, done with um, a, a fellow colleague, um, Emma Laqiq from Williams College, a couple of workshops. Um, one was in um, Bethlehem University and the other was in the Free University at Berlin, where we talked with Arab audiences and we told them what we know. Her approach to indigeneity comes from her work um, in Latin America as it connects to Palestine. Mm. And we asked the question, we just introduced the information to them, right? We said, this is what indigeneity means in the context of North America. This is what it means in the context of Latin America. How do you think Palestinians fit into this? And we got interesting responses, especially from students in Bethlehem who there was a couple of people said that they were uncomfortable with that term. And at the time I thought it, it was because of the association with tribal, because that's often the case. But in reality, they, they, they were uncomfortable with it because they said um, they don't feel like it's fair to compare themselves to a people who experienced colonization for five centuries as opposed to how mm. Palestinians have experienced it. And in my head, that's, I was like, that's such an indigenous response to give though. <laughs> um, so, um, so they were saying how, oh, is there a way for us to create a term that somehow mesh, like meshes um, what Algerians have experienced, what South Africans have experienced and what, um, uh, what the indigenous population in North America has experienced and that in uh, those in Latin America and come up with a concept that worked for us. And so we've been in the process of workshopping that, um, even the process of seeing, because um, Arabic does not have a word for indigeneity, which is interesting. And so thinking through um, like, what would that, cultural etymology be for a term like that. Um, I would also say that, as you mentioned in your um, question, in your first question, how if we should reserve that term for tribal peoples, and I think that Palestinians are tribal in different ways. Like for instance, for me, I come from a rural community um, in the southern, from the southern of Palestine. So um, Hebron, my dad comes from a village in Hebron, my mom from a village in, in Nablus. And both of them have um, like a last name and a tribal last name. 
So Ganayim is my last family name, but it's not my last tribal name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the way it works, you know, the way the structure works, just thinking about it from an indigenous being trained in indigenous studies and looking at it from that perspective, is that you can trace how everyone in that village connect to each other based on these larger last names and how these families connected over the past. I would also say that one complexity is Palestinian community is pretty, is probably one of the most diverse in the world. Like think of all the civilizations that have passed on that land. Um, I did the um, awkward experiment of testing my DNA once just out of curiosity. Uh -huh. and, um, and obviously, I mean, this data, I mean, you know, there's a lot of critique on DNA and so I'm not in any way endorsing it, but just saying that it was a, uh, an interesting experiment because I found out that like I have a portion of me is Sephardic Jewish and I was thinking of how like oh that makes total sense because like there's a way and Stephen mentioned that like there is a way for us to trace our lineage to each other <laughs> in what accounts for all these civilizations that have been um, existed on Palestine. Um, back in the 90s there has been there was news about Israel perfecting this genetic bomb. I don't know if anyone has heard of that, but they wanted to create a genetic bomb. That's what it was called at the time, where they, if they throw it into populated areas, it would um, um, target Arabs and protect Jews. And in the process of creating that technology, and it's very poorly reported on in, on the internet that if I go ahead and like say it at a conference, people will call me a conspiracy theorist, but I, think there's a way to prove it though but um i the the news that i read said the the project failed the the news that i read said the the project failed because of the similarities in our genetic making and i'm like obviously that makes total sense so we are more advanced when it comes to understanding our culture our ethnic making in ways that israelis still have to catch up on because of their uh, very eurocentric very white way of understanding what culture looks like. And sadly, due to things like, you know, state nationalism and settler nationalism, a lot of these complexities, even, um, even the fact that like what Amra said, movement is, um, is accounted for inherently in a concept like indigeneity, because the way I understand indigeneity, regardless of how we choose define, to define it is, um, as a practice of belonging that is very specific to a particular kind of group and that it manifests through certain patterns. And in my own research, I've been trying to find these patterns away from Israeli definitions of it, away from um, US definitions of it, just by looking at how we express ourselves discursively and the patterns of our expression. Um, so how do we talk about land? How do we talk about ourselves? And in the process of making these comparisons, and I set them comparatively against how settler nationalists talk about home and about um, belonging. And what I've noticed is that there is a pos possessive, exclusionary, self-exceptionalizing thread in settler nationalist expression that I did not see in, in the indigenous context that I looked at. So I'm trying to figure out, like work more on how these patterns manifest. And I think that language or how we express ourselves is, a, is our, for me at least, is our way of seeing um, how um, that looks 
you know, it's really fascinating. And as I'm listening to the three perspectives, and then I look at it with the Arab world or the Middle East and Northern Africa, uh, and I have concluded, or so in my mind, is that this is a concept that can be used uh, for whatever rights uh, and, uh, and purposes and misused. When you, and then uh, the second concept that Iman was talking about, the exclusionary, or this is, is my concept and it applies only to my community, uh, and, and the whole issue with colonialism, post-colonialism, and all of that. But I think when you look at the Middle East and Northern Africa, I, I, I think it has a different uh, uh, connotation. And, it, it, and it's really perhaps about existence. So you look at, there are, there are two ways you could look at it. One is that colonial uh, association. It, it, it's a sense of uh, uh, my existence. It's a right for me to fight. The Palestinians, for example, of Negev, people who were li lived there for so many years, are called Arab Palestinians. The Palestinians are called, uh, they are whatever you believe in the PLO, the Palestinian National Authority, you call them Palestinian Authority, not Palestinian National Authority. That's a denial of that, uh, 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 that existence. And therefore, the, the presence in, in, in a land or the ownership of a land becomes association uh, uh, for one's existence. So the Israelis, when you look at the Palestinians issue, define indigeneity as a denial of the settlers or for to come in that country. So the, the, the definition is that the Palestinians uh, don't believe that we exist. Ben-Gurion is very famous for saying uh, that you know we create we uh, we are reserving the land of Najaf uh, to ascertain uh, the presence of settlers uh, to guarantee that the settlers will come. That was uh, uh, telling about it. The whole settlement of it, that colonial aspect, association of indigeneity with uh, with uh, ownership of the land. You could go back to see how uh, 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 the, later on the states formed. Palestine was ruled by the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. During that time, the Palestinians pay taxes, and the taxes was an assurance that you know, they own land. When the British came in, they shifted, they start to rule through the tribal leaders. So that's why tribalism came in throughout in the place they ran. Tribalism and the ownership of land shifted and it becomes sort of more right to, to uh, be associated with the formation of the state. Let me just finish this, and then I'll come back to the other aspect. The, 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 uh, the end of colonialism sort of ended the debate over uh, uh, this idea of indigeneity, but it still exists, and it exists in different forms. The uh, look at the, the, uh, the rights of the Berbers, the Kurds, the debate that center around the, the, their struggle. And they center around the idea, well, the, the Iraqis and the Turks tell, tells the, the Kurds, uh, you know, you're welcome to have your own state, but it's not on our territory. So their idea is that, you know, this Kurdish or Berber idea exists in up there, and but the ownership of, but because land is very important, that's what they look at it. It's really a fascinating uh, debate, but it takes a spin from different perspective. 
uh, and the perspective is that it can be used when it's used by the other. It either has that cultural aspect. In the Arab world, when we look at when we think of the Native Americans, we think of the Western movies, where how the the Native American are portrayed. And I'm guilty of that. I, did, I, I, I come to learn to be conscious of those rights until I came here. So, so that's the association. It's more of a cultural thing, but it's really deeper than that. It, it addresses the issues of power. Why is it a group like the Berbers and the Sahrawis today who are defended for the national rights are denied rights anybody could have to speak their own language, to, to, to say anything else? Because those are the fundamentals. The fundamental. And, 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 and Iman, to your point, there is no Arabic word. We, you are in indigeneity in, in, in the Arabic language. It's actually the translation is authentic. And authentic is different from, uh, from uh, what is it, from indigeneity. And authentic is so neutral. It speaks of, a, of, a, of an age or a certain aspect of it. I know you have a commercial to do uh, something, uh, David. We have to uh, just break for a moment to identify the station. Uh, let me tell our listeners, you are listening to Swana Region Radio on Pacifica Radio KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles and streaming worldwide at kpfk.org. If you missed part of this show or want to hear it again, the show is available on audio archive at kpfk.org for 60 days. We are now also on Spotify where you'll be able to find this and other shows. Back to uh, back to you, Hamoud. So the, the the question maybe I have for for for, uh, for Steve is how do you reconcile those rights that comes with you know being a citizen of a country and the recognition of your own sort of being recognized in the state as such? I think it has to follow along an axis of understanding social organization according to the concept of a nation rather than a unitary nation state that that's the first thing to me that a, a, a nation i optimally will embody the totality of the populations that identify with it that's much easier to do in theory, of course, than in practice. But as a political aspiration, it's, it's valuable and important that the space, in other words, shouldn't be exclusively reserved for the, the community that wields the most power, that it needs to be a fundamentally multicultural space as any nation is and this is you know this is a, one of the problems of of the post-colonial nation state is that it was formed in the image either of a, of an ethnic minority that the colonizer wanted to empower or you know the 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 the, the community that that was the largest and and had the best arms and the, and the strongest economy so you know when we're talking about um berbers um the whole range of, of what you could call ethnic or cultural minorities that exist uh, mm -hmm. across what we know as, as the Arab world, that those communities not only need to have freedom, but they need to have a say in what we conceptualize as 
the nation in 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 the first place and this is the this is the first and most fundamental problem of of zionism is its exclusivist orientation it's extraordinarily rigid notion of of belonging this is not to say that those rigid notions of belonging don't exist elsewhere in the arab world or even in certain spaces within palestinian society but israel is already formed it's already cast it's already a world superpower when we're thinking about what kind of nation we want palestine to be in the wake of liberation these are all things that we need to take into account we we have to use a, an optimal vision of what this liberated nation is going to look like. And it's one that accommodates the totality of the people who exist there within space and across time, if, if that makes any sense. That, that uh, for me, a, a functional and an ethical notion of, of nationhood is one that doesn't try to impose a partial vision of of cultural universality right, on the entire population that it's one that allows for multiple languages it's one that uh, allows for multiple histories it's one that allows for deepened and and complex relationships it's it's one that acknowledges the tensions that exist and tries to work through it in a collective sense rather than conferring a distinct set of rights on one community or one imagined community at the expense of, of all the others. So we have to keep thinking about it. We, we have to keep raising the difficult questions of, 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 of how exclusivist notions that we deplore in Zionism might be reproduced within our own societies. And that is a challenge that every single anti-colonial struggle has had to take up, right? That, that's, that's something that's talked about in Native North American communities all the time. It's, it's talked about in Hawaii elsewhere that, that you know, what, are, are we looking simply to replace the power of, of the colonizer and transfer it into our own hands? Or are we trying to create a nation in the wake of, of this colonial devastation that, and that will look much better right, than, than what it is we've worked so hard to replace? Can I add something to that? Sorry. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be quick so um, Amra can contribute as well to this question. Um, I um, I think that you know we're experiencing we're still experiencing one of the world's worst refugee crises, and I think that um, a lot of the discourse and a lot of it comes from our region, um, and the war on terror continues to displace us and displace us from our. Um, um, homelands, our historical homelands, and so far, you know, the research on the war on terror has not accounted for that severing um, and for that kind of displacement as a displacement of indigenous populations. So I do see indigeneity as helping us show people that refugees come from somewhere, that just because, you know, a natural crisis or a civil war or a settler colonial structure has displaced them or us, um, that does not mean that they don't originally have a right to that land and they need to be returned to that land. I would also say that, um, you know, um, Eric Chaffetz once said in one, of his, in one of his pieces how the nation is the settler colonial alibi. And I think that's true, you know, nationalizing in the process of, um, in this, in, in the US and other settler colonies, um, 
the nation making goes hand in hand with homemaking. So in order for settlers to moralize their existence, it had to be about homes, it had to be about the nation, because that made sense for them to feel less guilty about it. Um, I mean, some of them are genocidal and evil, and some of them just think that because, you know, they want a home for their families, that kind of excuses that ratio of indigenous peoples, right? And I think that this is the, this to me is the danger of settler colonialism. It is not the actual colonial tools. It is the, what they export from their nationalism that then touches on how the rest of the world manages its borders, its security, its safety, its belonging. So when we think of the Palestinian or any Arab national project, like it's really hard to separate it from colonial nationalism and how it functions. And so I think that again, returning to indigeneity is our way of reminding people and reminding ourselves that um, nationalism is bad um, and it's always gonna fall into the trap of doing the three things that I mentioned before, being possessive, exclusionary and self-exceptionalizing, right? If I may just build on you know, an immense point and, and Stephen, and then I, I, I know Amra have a lot to say. It's very, very interesting. In the case of Algeria, the French cre created the, the, uh, the law of, uh, uh, what do you call it, indigeneity, if you want, to disassociate or uh, sort of to give rights that are not equal to the, the natives, the Algerians, that are not as equal to those of the French. So the idea indigeneity was viewed as, as barbarian, as, a, uh, as sort of as a bad thing. Uh, uh, we go back to the Palestinian, Herzl, you know, the, the founder of Israel, uh, looked at the Palestinians as a, as, as a bunch of uh, backward and illiterate people uh, in the debate of where to find the land of Israel. It's really, very really fascinating. I wonder, Amra, uh, when you think about uh, uh, the whole idea of uh, a sort of, uh, I mentioned earlier this idea that indigeneity is now associated with certain cultural groups, uh, you know, and it's a lot of, uh, often it's, it's bias, stereotypes, all of that. How about the narrative? Uh, uh, Stephen talked a lot about, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, the existence order, we need to work with those, we need to, those are challenges. But the narratives is very, very important. How we frame the, how should the indigenous people frame the narrative? Is it, and the narrative, is it uh, uh, associated with uh, sort of uh, this conciliatory thing where we, uh, we need, as, as, uh, as Man, uh, Mandela once said, that, that it's strange for him that we live in an age where we are asking of the oppressed to recognize the shortcomings, the limits of the oppressor. In other words, we have to adapt uh, to those conditions or what the uh, Netanyahu used to, to say to Arafat, look, if I, go, if I give you less than 10%, my cabinet will, will go away. So how much of that narrative uh, is important uh, for the indigenous uh, uh, groups uh, to, to sort of uh, uh, achieve positive or help their cause? Um, I wanted to kind of go back to this question of nation and then I'll get to yep. your question of, of, of narrative. Um, I think, I think, and I'm coming more to this, this feeling that the word nation is maybe not the most useful word to describe even Stephen, what you're describing is what we need to do <laughs> and what we want to create. 
you know, and so I think about, um, you know, the Zapatistas will talk about, you know, building a world where many worlds fit and thinking about um, how do we create a world where we're centering the other, where we're not, um, you know, excluding people based on difference and creating hierarchies based on difference, but we're actually making difference our strength and we're um, undoing these systems of oppression and, and de imagining decolonization is that, right? Um, and I feel like what we imagine is decolonization, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Algeria or the US-Mexico border or Hawaii, may not be a nation. <laughs> You know, and I, I feel like the term nation is so loaded um, and it's so loaded with um, both, you know, the colonial, uh, you know, imperial, you know, imposition of, of what a, a nation is under capitalism and, you know, or under communism or, or however it's been imposed. And, and then, you know, the reaction of, you know, the last century of, you know, radical nationalisms that still had lots of problems. <laughs> you know, that still reproduced many forms of oppression internally. And, you know, we look at the questions of, you know, post-colonialism. And I think, you know, Algeria is a great example of this, you know, after the revolution, then what, you know? Um, and I think this question of, of, is a nation exactly what we want or do we need to create a new term and a new formation to think about something different um, is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And so I think then, if if we're trying to you know decolonize our concept of what type of political formation is possible you know if we're trying to think about something beyond a nation that could res, you know make reparations for what the nation has imposed on us <laughs> then we do need a new narrative right then we do need a new narrative of of where we've been and i think that that ties to indigeneity and how we we see ourselves um, in place and in movement and in relationship with each other. Um, and then we also need a new narrative of, of what, you know, what do we want in terms of a futurity that's beyond colonialism and also which aspects of the past do we want to regenerate and which do we not, you know, want to continue to reproduce. And I think that that's, that's the question of narrative that I think about a lot is, um, how do we have something that's flexible enough to allow us to actually address um, violence and how it's manifested over time? Because a lot of the ways that I think the narrative that builds a nation has, has happened, even when we're thinking of radical anti-colonial nationalisms, there's still an us and a them. There's still a, um, a limitation to how we're thinking of, of community and belonging and boundedness. And there's a limitation of imagination towards um, what can we create. Uh, and I think it's, it's complicated, but I, I, this is why I think that it's important to have these conversations across space because I think the big lesson to me that came out of the anti-colonial movements of the last two centuries has been that if we launch a revolution in one area, <laughs> we need to be connected to people in another area because at this point, you know, with this globalized world, our none all of our liberations are tied to each other. So, you know, we're not gonna be free unless you're free. <laughs> you know, we need to become free together. And and we learn from each other, you know, we learn from each other's struggles and mistakes and 
and visions and imaginations. And so I think that that's where the narrative becomes really important. And then that's the beauty of, of these connections. You know, I know we've been, you know, our collective has been organizing um, to stop, you know, the wall all, along the US-Mexico border. And, and folks from Palestine came out, you know, to visit some of the tribal nations and stand in solidarity. And, and we've had a lot of conversations. And the things that we talk about, um, are very different in terms of our experiences, but then there's these, these similarities where we can connect on, okay, the world that we want, you know, doesn't have racists in it, but it might have refugees, like refugees, yes, racists, no. <laughs> and we can, we can come together on that point um, in recognizing each other. And, and I think that that's, you know, one of the, the connections we have is, you know, we can talk about the importance of, of an olive tree compared to the importance of an oak tree or, um, you know, Palo Verde, we, we have these these connections to land and place that, that are really transnational and beautiful and then could situate our liberation in a different imagination. And I just, I want to go back to something um, Amra mentioned in passing right at the beginning, which is the whole question of scarcity and the ways in which I think settler colonies take places of abundance and try to re-script them as places of scarcity. And I wonder if one of the ways to, to think about decolonization is actually about a realization of the actual abundance so that, you know, the idea of property and its exclusiveness makes, makes for scarcity because it's seen as a zero sum game in which only one person can own or one group of people can own. So I, I wondered if, if maybe one of the ways to think about this as unfortunately our conversation has to draw to an end is, is actually thinking about decolonization as a proposal for sharing the abundance that actually exists rather than propertizing and monopolizing um, resources which then appear to be scarce. But I, I wonder what, what you think about that because that's been sort of on my mind throughout this conversation listening to you all talk. I mean, the way I personally see it is, I mean, decolonization is often something that people in Palestine studies or Palestinian communities and indigenous studies and indigenous communities um, profess as part of their mission, but it's really also the work of settlers having to decolonize <laughs> by returning these things. So it's it seems unfair that we have to do all the work of decolonization in that sense when we don't even have access to the things that we need to decolonize. Um, so beyond things like land acknowledgement, beyond things, beyond the gesture, how do you, how do we, how do those who are in control of these resources can start to release them so we can use this abundance and reframe it so it can include all of us, right? I mean, I think of it too as like, what colonization has done is separated um, the connections that we've had historically between land and life, right? And so like by possessing land or by possessing people um, that doesn't allow either the land to regenerate itself or the people to have, you know, the ability to regenerate themselves and live their full lives in the land that they are from, right? And, and so I think if we can reconnect, you know, our, our life and, and, you know, reclaim life and land at the same time, 
that that's what decolonization means to me for for indigenous peoples. Um, and so I think it, it's one of the, I think, generative things to think about is how do we do that together, you know, across distances and, and through these multiple colonial regimes that are impacting us, you know, sometimes in very similar ways. Those are really beautiful and, and powerful reflections that I really have no ability to follow up on. So the only thing that I could add is that I've, 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 I've started to think of decolonization you know, not not as the utopias that I find myself getting lost in, but the very possibility of a future at all. When I look at the ecology of the world and and you know the vast inequalities of of income and just you know the the pandemic and everything. Some sometimes I think that. I, I want to have a future to fantasize about in the first place. And so there is a sense of urgency now to my understanding of decolonization that I, I, I want that world to keep existing. And <laughs> then maybe, um, you know, we can, uh, we, we can do about the, 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 the work of, of, you know, uh, playing out these these uh, you know these, these utopias, these fantasies, whatever you want to call them. But right right now, my my understanding of of decolonization is is largely tied to survival, and that that's very inadequate to the to the imaginary of decolonization and to all, all the work that people have have done on decolonizing already. But I I, I do think that. There is there is a sense of of urgency in this particular moment that we 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 want to have a a, a world to to inhabit to begin with because if we continue on on our current course the the prognosis doesn't always feel wonderful. Well, thank you, Steve, for those words. Uh, things can look pretty dismal, but it feels to me that conversations like these really give us a way to think about a future that we can hope for rather than dread. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have on our show today, but I hope it carries forward into the future with us. Um, our guests today have been Stephen Salida, independent scholar and writer, Amra Salomon Johnson, Odam scholar and activist, and Eman Ganayem, scholar of Palestinian and American Indian literatures. The Swana Collective would like to thank our guests this and all our show are available to download at kpfk.org, and you can also hear them now on Spotify if you just look for Swana Region Radio. Thanks, as always, to Ahmad Ibrahim for post-production, and special thanks to our sister show, Middle East in Focus, for generously granting us their half hour today so that we could do this one-hour conversation. My name is David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective, and on behalf of my co-host Hamoud Salhi and all our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. <laughs>